This is The Bittersweet Life. If you're new to the show, thanks for joining us. I'm Katie Sewell. I've been in the radio business for nearly 20 years, mostly working for public radio in the United States. In 2013, I quit my stable job and I moved to Rome for just a year. That's where this podcast begins. And if you're new, don't be afraid to start at the beginning. I'd hate for you to miss out on the adventure. That adventure might inspire you to do something crazy, like quit your stable job and move to Rome for just one year. And my co-host is Tiffany Parks. She's a writer and author of Midnight in the Piazza. And she's also an expat who moved to Rome over a decade ago with the determination to stay whatever it took. She's also my childhood friend. I met her on the school bus in the sixth grade. I hope you like the show, and if you do, tell a friend and take the time to write us a review. And if you've listened to the show for years, consider a donation. Your financial support is huge to us. In fact, I can't think of a donation to anywhere that would be more appreciated than what it will be to us. We'll send you a handwritten thank you note. And in addition to helping us pay hosting fees and other bills, your support will help us grow the show, which is absolutely the key to this program continuing in the years to come. So if you love it, if we make your life a little better, please pay whatever you can to support the art that you enjoy. Visit thebittersweetlife.net on your desktop and click the donate button. Or tweet us at bittersweetpod and we'll send you a link. Thank you so much. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I have a guest with me at my San Francisco apartment, which hardly ever happens. Sarah McCall is a terrific writer, in my opinion. Her debut book is a memoir called Joy Enough, which has just been released on the world. I absolutely loved it. It's sharp and insightful sentences. It has philosophical and cerebral thinking in it. And it just kind of, I've been raving to her for the last half an hour. Officially, though, you were the founding editor-in-chief at Yahoo Food a McDowell Fellow and a Pushcart Prize nominee, and her essays have appeared in the Paris Review, Story Quarterly, and McSweeney's, among other places. Thanks for coming over. Thank you so much for having me. I really had a hard time figuring out where to even begin with this book because it's not, it's a short book, but it's not a light read. You're talking about loneliness, belonging, the search for meaning, hope, joy, grief, lust. I mean, is there any topic you didn't <laughs> didn't cover in this book? Yeah, and that's why like it's so hard when people say, "Oh, what's your book about?" It's like, "Oh lord, where do I start and what do I say?" I've never been good at like an elevator pitch, you know. Yeah, I do know because I can't describe this show to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You get it. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I guess we could start with joy. Like, where did the title come from? Mm. The title is from an Emily Dickinson letter, in which she says, "The mere sense of living is joy enough." And I just thought that that felt right. It reminded me of my mom who like was so into the senses. I like that it has sense in it because that is where so much of my sense of joy comes from is through 
food and great music and beautiful art, you know, all of that sort of sensual, sensuous delights of life, basically. Not that you have to make an elevator pitch, but <laughs> since the book just came out and most people listening haven't yet read it, if we had to say what it, what it is about in two or three sentences, how would we even go about it? Well, one of the things that I've been thinking about it that's unique is that on some level, it's a love story. And it's a love story that we don't hear very often, which is not a matrimonial love story. And it's not a sexual love story. It's a love story between two women. And it's a mother and a daughter. So I think that is maybe kind of unusual in some sense. We hear about those relationships being troubled, but maybe not as much a mother who just loves being a woman and raises a daughter to feel good about all those things that we have internalized feeling bad about maybe from our culture. So I'm getting into too many sentences, but <laughs> but that's one way I kind of think about it and talk about it. Yeah, and it's also intertwined with the end of your marriage, right? Yeah, yeah. The end of my marriage, the end of, you know, kind of begins with the end of her marriage. And, um, you know, someone asked about a male character in it. And my father actually, said, she said, you know, your father kind of disappears. And I said, well, all the men kind of fall away, you know. So I, that's really important to me is that sense of the women kind of at the core of the book. So you have, I have to look at my notes because... I can't paraphrase you, but you have a lot of great repetitive echoes that happen throughout the book. Like the question, I loved my mother and she died. Is that a story? You come back to that question multiple times. And then, or even the question that if people keep telling you that you're like your mother, what does that mean? Yeah. There's two questions that I want to ask. One, what does that mean? <laughs> people say that you're like your mother, but, but also in thinking about how you were putting the book together, how are you thinking about it in your head? Like the sound of it, these repeating questions, is that because you want the audience to take those questions away? Is that like a musical quality of your writing? What is that? I think on some level, it's kind of a testament to the way I think on the page in some sense. Usually my writing feels like it's motivated by some desire for knowing or for discovery. I have some problem or a question that that I want to figure out. So it's my way of thinking through something. And with my mom, I always kind of thought she was interesting and I and I was curious about her. But I was curious about her before me, beyond me, you know, like as a person and as a woman. And so I was just so curious, well, what does it mean when someone says you're like your mother if I myself am constantly in a quest to understand who my mother is. Yeah, and I was always asking her, like, well, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about this. Tell me about that. And I was talking to a friend last night, and she said, you know, I actually think that's unique that you were so curious about your parents as people because maybe that's not a thing that everyone has. I don't know. Um, so what does it mean? Well, the answer in the end of the book that I sort of come to is that, well, I'm not just like my mother. We get a lot of um, inherited or like applied definitions of self as we grow up. You're shy or you're a tomboy or whatever these things are. And in some ways, I think the book is about examining that idea. What does it mean to be like your mother? And in the end, feeling comfortable to kind of throw it off and define 
myself on my own terms a little bit. Also, that can be both a complimentary statement and a negative statement, by the way, that culture views mother-daughter relationships. Yeah. Sometimes saying you're like your mother is the worst thing that you could be. Totally. <laughs> or you're becoming like your mother is something that people always say, like, oh, you know, cautionary tale, you're starting to become like your mom. But in your case, too, it's also you paint your mother as such a remarkable human. It comes off as a compliment, too. So whether or not you identify with it or not, it's sort of an interesting multi-layered question yeah because she says in the beginning you know I think I say to her in the book people keep saying that I'm just like you and she says oh I'm sorry I, I hate when people say I'm like my mother so I think yeah it is kind of a complicated idea for a lot of people less complicated for me I guess because I did think she was cool but I just didn't I didn't know what it meant on some level yeah. what do you think people were responding to when they would say that about you you know, so the mere sense of living is joy enough, that kind of thing. Joseph Campbell has a, a thing that he says, so I'll paraphrase him, that people don't want the meaning of life. They want the sense of aliveness, the experience of feeling alive, as opposed to feeling like you're sleepwalking through your life or something. I think my mother was really good at being present, and she could be present with other people, and I think people loved feeling seen by her in that sense. She could really be there in the moment. I would be hugely flattered if that's what they're responding to. But I think it's also pretty superficial in some ways. I look a lot like her. Same sort of round face and like cackly laugh, you know? So I think that there is some of that that's kind of just basic. Like you said, you were interested in your mother's childhood and you do a good job of painting her as a her own individual person, not just the mother that you witnessed. And um, one of the things you talk about is the unmet desires that she had in her life. What were some of those? Well, I think like her greatest dream was to have a happy family life, a really cohesive, tight family life because she had felt sort of lonely, I think, in her family. Her divorce was a great sadness to her because it meant the, you know, she had four kids, and it meant the disruption of a, of a vision that she'd had about what a happy family looks like. It also ended up being fine, of course, as, as most things usually are, and we remade ourselves into another kind of family unit, but I think that was probably really, really hard for her. Do you relate to that? You know, having gone through your own divorce, the sense of an unmet desire, do you relate to her? Or how does your own experience relate? That's a great question. Um, the line about unmet desire, I think, comes up in a sexual context. So it's partly about feeling unseen by a partner. I don't think that's something that women talk about very much. Mm -hmm. I think there's kind of a cultural taboo around women feeling, I guess I'm just going to go for it and say this, sexually rejected kind of, because the way we talk about it culturally is that men are sex maniacs and they just want to have sex all the time. But that's not really fair to men and it's not fair to women either. Yeah, so specifically in that context where she has this kind of unmet desire or doesn't feel seen fully as a woman in her life, yeah, I, I related to that on a deep personal level. 
I actually didn't plan to talk to you too much about your husband, even though that's like (laughs) your ex-husband, even though that's a big thread through the whole thing. But since it is a part of the story, this story is also about grief. The fact that your mother does get cancer and she is dying through the vast majority of the book, unless you're flashing back. And the fact that you and your husband are getting more and more distant and not being able to fix things. How far away from that divorce are you now, would you say, in real life? Far. What I realized about that time in life, here I was with my mother who was dying, and I'm living out with her at her house and cooking with her, and a dire situation, right? But that time felt so rich with meaning, with connection, with all the juiciest, that thing that Joseph Campbell talks about, the sense of being alive in your body. And it was such a stark contrast to how I felt in my normal life, not only just city versus country, you know, pounding the pavement in Manhattan, going to work and riding the subway versus tending a garden at my mom's house, but also just feeling so connected to my mother and feeling really intimate in that relationship and realizing, oh, I'm supposed to have deep feelings of intimacy and connection in my marriage and I don't anymore. So that was hugely instructive, but I think it was also, um, it just revealed how kind of like a death had already occurred that maybe I hadn't realized in the moment. It's interesting because a lot of the things that we discuss on this show and that people write in about is often about these turning points or the looming of a turning point in some cases, whether that's just that you're about to retire or that you are in a job that you like even, but it just doesn't feel like it's enough or that question of, is it too late for me to move abroad even though I'm now in my 40s or all of these big kind of turning point questions or even leaving a marriage. Once you're far away from it now, can you still remember how your thought processes was, how, how long it takes you to figure out that this is something you actually need to let go of or move on from? Because sometimes in the moment, it just feels like you never make the decision. You know, it just lingers and lingers and lingers. Yeah, I mean, there were, and there were so many decisions that were all happening in that time in my life. And I have to thank you. Like, I love having conversations with anyone about turning points because I just think it's it takes a lot of courage to make a left turn in your life when you're going along a path and I respect the hell out of anyone who is doing that so one of the turning points for me was quitting my job and going to graduate school and I had a really good job you know I had a fun job I had a good salary but the farther along I got on the corporate ladder the farther away I got from what had gotten me into media in the first place which was writing so at the time I felt like I could divide the people in my life between people who thought I was crazy to give up a good job and people who thought what a fun adventure hello Tiffany here breaking into the show briefly to remind you that if you haven't heard our super secret truth or dare episode it's not too late everyone who has heard the episode has loved how much we embarrassed ourselves Katie makes a phone call that I cannot believe she actually made. I could never, ever have done it. And I love love how nervous she sounds during the call. And I sing. 
That's right. After years of hearing me talk about singing opera on the show, you actually made me prove it. On a street corner in Rome, no less. So the show is full of truths or dares, and I really hope you won't miss out on hearing it. Here's how you can get it. The first way is to make a donation of $50 or more to The Bittersweet Life. We need your financial support to keep the show going. So this is a win-win for everyone if you love the show. You can find a donation link in our show notes or at thebittersweetlife.net. The second way is to make a recurring monthly donation of $5 or more. Regular donors really help us plan how we will pay the web hosting fees and other bills that come up every month. Just use the same donate link and click recurring donation. It's that simple. And finally, the third way is to tell others about the show in a big way. Write a blog post about it. Make a YouTube video. Write an article in your newspaper about it. Whatever you do, share it with us and we will send you the Secret Truth or Dare episode and post your article on our website and social media sites. Thank you so, so much for your support of the show. You really are what keeps us going. And now back to the show. I'm kind of forgetting what you asked me. (laughs) But what I did want to say is just that like those people in our lives who say you're crazy. I mean, we were talking earlier about realizing that all advice or criticism is really about the person who's giving it. Those people have their own fears and it's so helpful to realize that you can listen to the people who are encouraging you to go have your next adventure and that you don't have to listen to the people who are afraid for you. Yeah. Well, and part of the question too was the decision to get a divorce can seem like it was, oh, it was obvious, but at the time might've been something that was like so slow or just what was that like for you? It was so, I, I just remember that experience as a very limping along kind of feeling where I had grown up the child of two people who'd gotten divorced and it had been very sad for me and I didn't want to um, quote unquote fail at my marriage and I thought maybe this is just a trial and we'll get through to the other side and it'll be better and richer and more meaningful. So I wasn't sure at all and I actually have, glad you've given me the opportunity to say this, I have deep deep gratitude actually to my ex-husband for just ending it. He he really was the one who kind of pulled the trigger, so to speak. And I'm glad he did because I don't know how long I could have existed in that state of going along and being unsure. Are you a decisive person in general? I can be about certain things, but about other things I'm not, like travel expenses. It's really hard for me to like buy a plane ticket because I just don't want to spend the money. <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> so you are you have great illustrative moments too of your mom giving you advice, which I love. And of course, I didn't write them all down. I've marked them throughout this book. I should take another photo of how many book darts I have. Book dart, by the way, marking the page is something I like. Um, But, you know, some of the advice she gives you is live harder, which is something she says while she's dying, as we mentioned. And or it's not too late to start over. You don't always have to be a good girl. And then the one part that we really loved, I really loved that both of us, you said you love this part, too, was when you say, what if I expect too much of life? And she answers. So what if you do? All of that is so lovely. And look, you get a little misty. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me what you're thinking about when I say all those things. I just, I love that part so much. I think it encapsulates something so fundamental about my mother, which was 
kind of what we were saying earlier, where there's so many people in life who want to tell you no or point out the reason why not to do something. And she wasn't like that. And so I love that moment standing in the pantry with her. You know, I want to think bigger and make a life that's bigger and more expansive and more maybe in line with what I think it can be and filled with more joy and creativity and whatever else and wondering if I have the right to want that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really a rare and beautiful thing when people in your life, especially if it's a parent, can say, yeah, why not? Why not? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, why not do everything you can? There was another thing, let's see, that just reminded me of another concept that you have. I think you even start the book with this, which is this notion that we rehearse our adult lives from the very beginning. Even as children, we're rehearsing what we imagine life is supposed to be. And sometimes even realizing that whatever that rehearsal was wasn't the truth for you or whatever. But what were you rehearsing for as a child, would you say? Like, what did you imagine? Well, in that scene, I'm making soup. <laughs> and I still love making soup. But I also remember the day when it was the best mail day ever. I got this package and it was a Shira costume and it was like Shira's cuffs, which I could snap onto my wrists, a tiara and I think a shield. And that's like rehearsing your superpowers, you know, or like I was very into riding my bike and I would imagine that it was a car and that I was driving around in that sense of like exhilarating freedom. I think that even as a child, you kind of have these nascent ideas, or I guess they're not even nascent. They're just, they exist in you already of what thrills you. That I think was part of what my mom was trying to give me in the end as she was dying was like this reminder that I've always kind of known what I wanted. Like, it's not so complicated. When did I make everything so complicated? I love muffin tins. I love cross-country skiing. I love writing. These things have always been true and kind of just coming back to those those things that your parents maybe saw in you and maybe you even knew about yourself as a kid. Well, and you also say at some point that, I don't remember what part of the book, but you remember because you yeah. worked on it so much, <laughs> that you have this sense at a time of life being disappointing, that it wasn't what you expected or maybe that it wasn't what you were rehearsing for or imagining. Do you remember that part? <laughs> I remember that part vividly because I'm talking to my friend, Jenny, I said, I don't know if I wrote all of this, but I said, I didn't know life would be so disappointing. And she said, I don't think you're disappointed. You're not disappointed that your mother's dying. You're not disappointed. Yeah, I don't think life is disappointing, but I think sometimes we live in a way that's small, smaller than maybe like our best vision for ourselves. And that feels disappointing because it's it's like an untruth. It's living an untrue version of what you want and what you care about. And that feels, that's disappointing because that's a betrayal of the self. Mm-hmm. I feel like I, before I ask you anything else, I should have you read something. Yeah. Because. Am I getting too philosophical? No, you're fantastic. Okay. Okay. <laughs> as long as we're on, as long as we're on uh, brand. You're getting too philosophical <laughs> for me. As everyone listening knows, I'm the one that's looking out over Rome and thinking, 
I'm going to die. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> look at all these people who built all this stuff who are no longer here. Yeah. That's, that's me in a nutshell right there. So, yeah. Also trying to learn to live is an important part of this show. Also, I just picked a part I liked. I actually, there's a post-it note in this book that says, read this question mark. And there used to be like six or seven of those post-it notes that said, read this. So I liked this one. I thought it was short and I thought it was a good demonstration of what kind of a writer you are but if you want to read anything else too you're welcome to well, I like this part too because I think it also is a good demonstration of my mother's character yes. <laughs> so okay it was a crowded Friday night at a strip mall steakhouse after chemotherapy a black hockey puck flashed to tell us our table was ready my brother and I softened our edges with alcohol my mother ordered filet mignon and a baked potato Growing up, she encouraged us to eat the skins. That's where the vitamins are, she had said. Now I noted she left hers on the plate. I'd like to be buried in a plain pine box like Johnny Olson, she announced, with a honeysuckle planted on top. I sat opposite her in the booth, the beaded lampshade between us like the ones on horseshoe tables in old movie big band supper clubs. Next to the salt shaker, there was a laminated dessert menu with photographs of multi-layered, whipped cream-topped cakes and blue cocktails. This life is filled with so many distracting and crude details. I put down my silverware and looked at her across the table. I think honeysuckles are invasive, I said. Good, she answered, cutting a bite of steak. I love that. Yeah. I love that for multiple reasons. But I love your sentence. I thought it was particularly poignant, your sentence observing how garish so many of the yeah. details of life are. And particularly, this comes toward it, toward the end of the book, particularly when you're in this kind of rich emotional thing with a woman you love who is dying, to look at something like a blue cocktail list and a bunch of cake, it's so absurd, yeah. so trashy. Yeah, it's so ugly. And like, you know, those flip card menus. Yeah, you yeah. know them well. And yet so much of the world is full of this stuff. And it's always bothered me as an aesthetic. Yeah. I, it's always driven me crazy. Well, yeah, it drives me crazy, too. And I remember lying in bed with my mother around this time and she was in her pajamas. And I can't really remember what prompted her to say this. But she said, the older I get, which now that I think about it, it's kind of a funny construction because <laughs> she's basically saying, the closer I get to death, the more I think that pop culture is just completely worthless. And um, I think we'd been talking about the Kardashians or something. And I kind of loved that she said that. And, you know, there's a lot of pop culture that I like or can take pleasure in, I guess. But, yeah, that there's a lot of um, kind of junk food competing for our attention when what we really want is to be deeply nourished. How did your mother feel about the fact that she was dying? She was very steely and uh, willful about living. Even as she was dying, I remember saying to her once, you know, you don't have to be so strong. And she said, I'm not being strong. I just don't want to get emotionally involved with being sick, which I thought was really interesting like she wanted to be emotionally involved with being alive 
and being sick was in some ways just this thing that was happening in her life, kind of like, um, I don't know, getting a parking ticket or something. It was in the way of what she wanted to do. So I think she experienced a lot of frustration that her body was kind of betraying her from doing the things she wanted. And I remember her just saying over and over again, she just wasn't done. You know, there's so much I want to do, she'd say over and over again. I want to recover this couch. I want to go to the junk store. I want to see my grandkids. So I think it was very frustrating for her. I guess that's kind of a strange answer now that I'm saying it out loud, but yeah. It's not, because I can imagine that that's how I would feel. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, and it's funny too about the advice people give, because when she tells me, live harder, I mean, she's talking to herself too, right? My time is so limited or is only so long. What am I going to do? I'm going to live as well as I can until the end. Yeah, there's another thing that you say when you're observing your mother. Look how many quotes I've written down. I know. I'm so People who listen to this show also know that I don't often write down a bunch of quotes. So this is a really good book. You write, how could a thing be in the process of dying when I had never seen anything more alive? And you're talking about your mother. You're talking about looking at your mother. What did you see? Can you still imagine like what you were seeing? Is it just that spirit of wanting more? Or was it something else that you were witnessing in her that like a change that happened because of her time being limited? I don't know if it was um, a change in her so much as it was like a mutual. I guess I was talking earlier about her ability to be present. And if I was being kind of equally present with her, then there was this cocoon of aliveness between us. That moment that you just read, I had a really hard time writing because I could viscerally feel and remember what that moment was like. You know, we were sitting really close on the couch. I had just been reading her a poem. We made eye contact. And it just felt like, I didn't know how to say, and I kind of still don't know how to say, that it felt like we were, like I was looking beyond her body. And and I guess what's hard to say about this is that, you know, basically the eyes are the window to the soul is like the problem that I'm dancing around. But that is what was happening. It was just being so totally present with each other. And I guess what I want to say in regards to this too is that on some level, I think death, and the presence of death kind of in the room, it can be very clarifying. You can choose to be more on board with life when death is kind of lurking in the room. And I know she felt that, that it was very clarifying. So that's what I think in that moment is just us both being like a witness to each other, you know, in a really deep, fundamental way. So how would you say you are different now? Obviously, she does pass away. And so now you're in this new phase of life. When you think about the Sarah that's in all the moments that you're writing about versus the Sarah today, what what has changed, if anything? I think I'm more aware of not letting fear stand in the way of my decisions and to have a kind of greedy approach to what I want in life and to be unapologetic about that. There's also a part in the beginning where I talk about 
that I felt like she was a planet and I was her moon or something. And that when she went away, it was like I was orbiting nothing. And I think what's happened now, this is going to sound cheesy, but I'm going to say it anyway, (laughs) is that it's like the process of her dying and everything that happens in the book allowed me to become the planet rather than a satellite. And I guess that's the process of growing up, right, is learning that this is it. (laughs) Like (laughs) that you don't have to live in relationship to, or like as a sidebar to something else, that it's your life, you know? And she says that a lot in it. You have this one precious life I'm sure we've all been thinking about Mary Oliver a lot, you know, in the last week or so. And um, yeah, like do it. So I think that is much more top of mind for me now. So besides being on book tour and having this book out, is there anything else you're hurtling toward? (laughs) (laughs) Through the, through the atmosphere. (laughs) Um, Further desires or uh, next journeys? Yeah. Well, you and I were talking earlier about being, creative people who are also kind of in the business of being entrepreneurs of that creativity. So I think I'm trying to be more entrepreneurial a little bit. And it's hard because none of that comes naturally to me. But, you know, maybe I want to start a workshop in Los Angeles out of my home or something or a newsletter or, you know, just like different things like that. But I really I'm looking forward to traveling a lot. And I guess I I also just feel very open right now. Like I feel like a page has just turned in the book of my life and I have no idea what's hurtling towards me. (laughs) And I'm excited to find out what it is and I hope it's not nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I hear that. Well, the book is called Joy Enough. It's Bright Yellow by Sarah McCall, M-C-C-O-L-L. It's so good. You should go out and buy three copies, four copies right now because you're going to want to give it to a bunch of different people in your life. Thank you for coming to my house. Thank you so much for having me over. Nothing makes me happier than when someone says, I want to give it to my mom. It's a good gift. (laughs) It is a very good gift. Yes. Joy enough. Thank you so much. Until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Thanks for listening and for telling a friend about the show. And thank you for your support financially. We can't wait to write you a handwritten thank you note to show you how much it means to us. You are spreading the word and supporting the show financially directly affects whether or not this program continues. So if you love it, support it. Find a donate link at thebittersweetlife.net or in our show notes. Thank you so much for taking the time. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye.